0: 7654321.
1: You'll never have the sacred stone. <laughs> oh, this is crazy, mother.
0: Welcome to the Dead Pundits Society. Hello, everybody. I'm your host, as always, Adam Proctor. Today's episode of DPS features a wild dichotomy of, on the one hand, apocalyptic doom, and on the other, visions of real utopias. The worst horrors faced by humanity, somewhat paradoxically, have always sparked movements of radical hope. The threat of cataclysmic climate change and the emerging movement for a Green New Deal are, in this sense, not strange bedfellows at all. So first, let's talk gloom and doom. As you are all painfully aware, we are facing as a society well over a dozen distinct crises right now. Healthcare, housing, employment, education, childcare, debt bondage and so on. And all of them can be directly tied to the rapacious and inhumane imperatives of our global capitalist system. But none of these crises, as bad as they are, have quite the potential to destroy human civilization as we know it, quite like the threat of runaway climate change and mass extinction. And yet, amidst the wreckage and death of already existing climate change and a future threat of, you know, civilizational destabilization and mass extinction lie the seeds for radical hope. The Green New Deal is now one of the hottest topics to emerge on the political scene over the past several years. It's an idea whose time has come. More precisely, we might go much further and argue that it's the fact that we are long overdue for sweeping and radical climate policy, which accounts for the explosion and enthusiasm around a Green New Deal. As many proponents have argued, the Green New Deal is not actually radical at all. Because given the cataclysmic consequences of climate change, the truly radical folly would be to preserve the status quo of tinkering at the margins with tax credits and climate summits full of false promises and carbon targets that go unmet. So the Green New Deal is leading the way in presenting a vision of a democratic, egalitarian, and humane escape hatch from our neoliberal hellscape. Along with Medicare for All, it has sparked a movement for robust, democratic, state-led social and economic change— that is broadly in keeping with the emerging democratic socialist zeitgeist. We socialists are in a rare position to argue that our vision of decommodified labor and nature is the only way to save human civilization from itself. And yet, in practice, the Green New Deal is being crafted not by principled socialists, but largely by progressives and their policy wonks. While we welcome these folks as our brothers and sisters— we also know that democratic socialists must be at the front and center of fighting for a principled green new deal because only the socialist vision of bottom-up democracy, anti-capitalism and egalitarianism can wage the class war necessary to win this thing. Going further still, as my guest Lee Phillips and I will argue today, socialists must place the labor movement and hard science at the front and center of this movement for a green new deal. So joining us today is Lee Phillips He's a science writer, a socialist, and the author of two books, Austerity, Ecology, and the Collapse Porn Addicts, published by Zero Books in 2015, and more recently, out from Verso Books this year, he wrote The People's Republic of Walmart with Michal Rosworski. Lee has been on DPS over the years to talk about both books, so listeners should definitely dig into those past episodes if they like what they hear today and would like some more context. Lee Phillips, thanks for coming back on the show. It's always a pleasure. Uh, get beer. You first came on DPS a couple of years ago. Uh, we talked about your first book, Austerity Ecology and the Collapse of Foreign Addicts. In many senses, we're going to be talking about a lot of those themes all over again. And that's like, that's, that's one of the things I've been noticing a lot on the show lately. I've been around enough to have on repeat guests. And I find that we have to rehash the same topics episode after episode. Uh, there's a little bit of frustration there, but Talk to us a little bit about your first book and how you're really still hammering home some of the themes that you first developed there in Austerity, Ecology, and the Collapse Porn Addicts.
1: Oh, well, I mean, I guess within the, in, with respect to the Green New Deal, if anything, I think probably the overarching themes within the two books come together really with, with respect to the Green New Deal. The first book was uh, effectively an argument against unwittingly uh, sort of neoliberal ideas, Within the green left, both not just in terms of what some of the things that you might expect, such as carbon pricing, you know, cap and trade and carbon taxation, flat taxes and sort of market approaches to um, uh, to climate change and other environmental issues. But also some that are very close to the heart of many people on the on, on the green left, you know, very sort of individualized personal consumption, individual responsibility approaches, degrowth uh anti-consumerism, localism, these sorts of things, and also some of the anti, I don't know, maybe anti-science is the wrong is too strong a term, but certainly maybe let's just say um uh technophobic positions uh with respect to uh nuclear power in particular, but also things like uh genetic engineering. And the the aim there was to say basically make an argument that the causes of environmental challenges that we face are not a product of growth or humans or us all, but very particularly a product of markets. That is to say that even if we know that something is very harmful, so long as that commodity continues to be profitable, there will continue to be an incentive on the part of the producers of that commodity to continue to produce it. Fossil fuels is the classic example of this. And then on the sort of flip side of that, if something is we know to be beneficial, but isn't profitable or even isn't sufficiently profitable, there will be no incentive for market actors to produce that item. Now, outside of climate change the in the Walmart book. Michal and I talk about how a great example there would be new classes of antibiotic. The big pharma largely got out of the business producing uh, not just research and development, but also actually you know, producing antibiotics about three and a half decades ago because it was simply uh, insufficiently profitable. I won't go into any detail of that, but the uh, sort of environmental example, um, instead of infectious disease, if we talked about a product or a service that uh, is insufficiently profitable, and yet we know that we need it would be something like a nationwide network of fast charging stations for electric vehicles. Tesla um, and other companies may install fast charging stations, but they'll do it only in those areas where there is a a good return on investment. They cherry pick largely urban routes and or routes between different major urban areas. And so they leave much of the country uncovered. This is a very similar effect to what we see with respect to the underprovision of high-speed internet to rural areas or to poor areas. Right, right. You stole um, the words right yeah. out of my mouth. Yeah, there's yeah. certain
0: things like that that the market just simply cannot provide for. And these are bipartisan issues, issues that are just as people on either side of the political divide in, in American politics will be interested in and uh, will will want for themselves. So I, I raised your first book there, uh, Austerity Ecology and the Collapsed Porn Addicts and The People's Republic of Walmart, not only to to kind of uh, talk about this really interesting and unique, I think, synthetic project that you yourself are are really at the the forefront of, I think, in in, in forging this large research agenda and policy and, and practice of what it means to plan the good Anthropocene, right. but also to kind of mark the difference to talk about how far we've come since the since I had you on the show the first time. You know, in the past two years, I, I like to do this with my guests because it's really easy to be gloom and doom and kind of, you know, drag our feet and woe is us. You know, it's difficult to be on the left. We get no respect, but uh, it's it's also important to, you know, to, to celebrate our wins. And one of those wins. Yeah. Is that the Green New Deal is putting the language of universal programs, the importance, the importance, at least in some senses, of planning a good Anthropocene, yeah, absolutely, uh, front and yeah. center, not only for you know these kind of far left whack job Marxists like us, right on the French, but also just kind of good wishy washy liberals and progressives as well. But that means that we have to fight uh, for the kind of principled and strident demands of, of what a Green New Deal might look like, and you have a lot to say about that. Talk to me about. Um, the kind of general rhetoric of the Green New Deal. Let's move forward with that. What are some of the things that you're excited about? What are some of the things that that concern you?
1: So what's just fantastic about the framing of a Green New Deal is uh, in particular two aspects. One, which uh, sort of responds to the argument that I was making uh, in both books about planning. If it's markets, not growth, that is the problem, then the solution is planning, not degrowth there's also reasons why we as socialists might want to have further economic growth but that's but I I've, I've touched on those issues on earlier shows of yours with the green new deal what this does is is really it leaps over both the sort of neoliberal response to um, sort of market-based responses to climate change, which, you know, let's be honest, after 20 years of, of climate diplomacy and climate projects really hasn't done much. The global share of non-fossil energy is identical in, in 2018, or was identical in 2018 to what it was in 1998, the signing of the Kyoto Protocol. So we're standing still. But it also leaps over that personal responsibility, anti-consumerism perspective, which is completely rebarbative to working people who suffer through in Western countries, suffered through basically four decades of stagnating wages. We want to see higher wages for working people, which means the ability to consume more or not, uh, that they should be consuming less. So, in its, fr- uh, its framing, it absolutely targets the cause of the problem, which is markets, and uh, the solution, which is planning. The second aspect of it, which is really, really, really excellent, is the the conception of the just transition. That is to say, it moves away from a, or at least should be moving away from, and we'll talk about that, in, I guess, in a second, it should be moving away from a demonization of fossil fuels, and fossil, in particular, fossil fuel workers, and says to them, look, it's wonderful what you've done, we absolutely appreciate you, you are, but we we know Now that we need to move away from these energy sources in order for our species to continue to prosper uh, and to avoid moving out of the optimum conditions, Earth system conditions under which humans have flourished for the last uh, 10,000, 12,000 years. But um, we're going to make sure that as we close our coal fired power plants, as we stop taking oil and gas out of the ground, nobody is going to be left behind. Everybody's going to be taken care of. Even if your jobs in those industries aren't there anymore. We will make sure that you have good jobs to go to, high-paying jobs, union jobs, uh, so nobody's going to lose out. You don't have to worry about losing your house. You don't have to worry about losing your pension or anything like that. At least that's the idea of the just transition. So those two things are, are absolutely crucial. And I think one other aspect, which is sort of beyond what I've discussed in, in in my books, but I think is, is absolutely essential to what makes a Green New Deal good, is this, it's fundamentally an economic stimulus uh, program. Uh, that has some, the way that that's going to happen is through these green, this green transition. But fundamentally, it's about uh, responding to the anxieties of working people in the United States and much of the, the Western world, because there's other countries that are talking about Green New Deals as well. Responding to that, the working class anxiety about job stagnation, about losing jobs, about precarity, the forgotten men and women that, you know, Trump was talking about. It's responding to that and saying, look, we have a solution. We're going to build out all this infrastructure and it's going to, there's going to be lots of great jobs, uh, permanent jobs, good, uh, high paying jobs. So it's an optimistic vision instead of a vision of hair shirted back to the land. Everybody has to give up something. Uh, We all have too much. That's at least that's, you know, I think that's um, that's what's great about it
0: in principle. Indeed, front and center of the Green New Deal, of course, is not just the need to roll back carbon emissions drastically and retool our economy to that end. But that centrally, every American who wants a job and wants to work should ha- should be provided one by the state in the service of achieving this just transition. And that's a really, really key element of this. That, however, has drawn a lot of fire. I had on Richard Walker last week on DPS. We talked about the legacy of the actual New Deal. He's the director of the Living New Deal Project. And we talked about a lot of the parallels there. So if people didn't hear last week's episode, definitely check that out. But just let me give you your thoughts really quickly on, you know, we talk about the Green New Deal. It's There's a historical, uh, direct historical uh, correlate there. Uh, the New Deal. What are the strengths of tying this to the legacy of the New Deal as Bernie Sanders has in a very, very explicit way, uh, most specifically in his infamous now democratic socialism speech that he delivered uh, last month?
1: I think the you mentioned the uh, the job guarantee. I think that's that's a crucial aspect of it. The New Deal was uh, the original New Deal was prim- but not primarily it was entirely, excuse me, an economic stimulus package responding to the crisis of the Great Depression. And trying to eliminate uh, mass unemployment. Today, uh, we have a similar sort of challenge there, and uh, along the lines of what I what I just mentioned, in terms of great swathes of the United States and the Western world, you know, deindustrialized sectors of our economies, where people have been forgotten and uh, are suffering or scared of falling into those situations. So, we're you know, it's interesting that, that there's been some centrist wonks and uh, uh, who uh, who complained about the fact that the the Green New Deal includes a job guarantee, but because they're saying, well, you're trying to stuff everything that, that you want, you know, Christmas uh, wish list of, of every, of everything into this, this one thing. And actually, I would say that the job guarantee is perhaps one of the most important aspects of the, of the Green New Deal. It's essential to winning people to the idea that this is not a green thing this i mean well it is but it's fundamentally uh economic stimulus it's fundamentally about improving people's lives and it just happens to be that we're going to be doing it through you know cleaning up our energy system and associated uh, projects so i i think that's actually i do think that i i mean i would concede that i think that things like medicare for all should be a separate project i don't think that has anything to do with this Green New Deal. And I think that might be, it's fine, you know, organized for uh, Medicare for All separate from uh, Green New Deal. I don't think there's any harm in that. At Those two as the, the sort of the, the two major tent poles of, uh, of a progressive agenda. But I, I don't necessarily think that Medicare for All needs to be wrapped into this, this one. That really is a distinct issue. But in terms of Resonances with previous New Deals. I, I mean, one of the things that we forget is that in 2009, there was another economic stimulus package, you know, $800 billion that Obama managed to pass. And a large chunk of that, about 90 billion of that was green stimulus. So there's a you know there's a precursor here. It's already in fact many of the, the the things that we are looking at at the moment in terms of the the radical reduction in the price of things like solar and wind. There's two primary reasons for that. One of course is China getting on board, but also crucially there wasn't really much of a clean energy transition prior to 2009 in the United States, and it really was. The Obama stimulus package that that has gotten us where we are as far as we are today.
0: Yeah. it really laid the foundations laid the, foundation. the capacities that we have to even work with now, these limited capacities as they are, wouldn't have been there if not for, for those stimuluses and as, you know, tax Absolutely. breaks and and uh you know seed monies and all those things that were well guaranteed also- in various ways. Crucially, you know, there was the
1: creation of ARPA-E, which was in the energy equivalent of DARPA, the uh, Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency that was responsible for, you know, basically, as Keynesian economist Mariana Mazzucato has pointed out, you know, pretty much the roughly dozen or so crucial technologies that exist within the mobile phone in your pocket uh, were not developed by Apple or Microsoft, but actually by the public sector, in this case, the Pentagon. But nevertheless, it was, it was public uh, sector uh, research uh, innovation that delivered that. And ARPA-E was modeled on that, and it's done some fast, fantastic work. Not enough. I need to go, uh, I mean, it needs to be much more ambitious, and I think that's where this Green New Deal 2.0, if you will, uh, which really ups the scale of the ambition, or at least should do, at least rhetorically, um, it is raising the the scale of the ambition, but there are some significant gaps there, and maybe we can talk about that right, in a bit. Right.
0: That book is the entrepreneurial state. If I am right, not yeah. mistaken, people should check that out. Uh, but the real the concept is very easy. It's one that shouldn't be too complex. It should be quite uh, apparent and obvious to listeners of DPS, uh, which is that you know the state is actually responsible for spurring on innovation r and d research again putting for that that seed money and the impetus for these major technological shifts throughout history throughout recent american history that capital then uh, sort of steals at very low cost if any cost and uh, you know uh, monopolizes patents and so on and so forth and, and takes credit for this quote hashtag uh, you know innovation elon musk style of of um, you know heroic Venture capital, whatever you know, it's it's really disgusting if if you lay out the, the history and the reality uh, that, that lays behind that. Uh, all these capitalists do is appropriate state funded technology uh, for themselves, and then they you know spend their billions as we all suffer and starve and and overheat. Speaking of overheating, you've written a number of pieces over the past year to defending a certain kind of eco modernism. Let's go back to that. I want to be really explicit about this because I do see. Uh, some tinges of anti-modernism that have sort of slipped their way into this discussion around the green new deal. And I know you and I have talked about this privately off air as well. So uh, I take my cues from you on this. So first of all, why should we be stridently and unapologetically eco modernist and what does that mean? And what are some of the tinges of, of anti-modernism that you see sneaking into, to this new green new deal enthusiasm?
1: Well, I mean, for for many years, I sort of struggled with this this term eco-modernist. And I think I still do to some extent, in that I never sort of thought of myself as an eco-modernist. I was just, I'm just a plain vanilla socialist. Um, I thought we were supposed to like technology and science, and um, and, and why and, is that?
0: T- tell the audience if they didn't already know uh, who who else among us <laughs> uh, ha- has been historically pretty pumped about scientific innovation on the socialist left.
1: Oh, I don't know, Marx, Engels, Lenin, Trotsky—you <laughs> <laughs> uh, name it. Uh, the The art and historical argument from socialism, uh, distinct from the sort uh, of utopian socialists, was that that we were that we were supposed to be uh, scientific in our approach that that we would be able to analyze the uh, the problems within society scientifically. You know, Marx and Engels were absolutely you know, enormous fans of the transformative capacities of capitalism. But at the same time there it was basically a case of both the mar- mar- writing about the marvel and the horror of that transformation. What they wanted to do was to remove the The horror aspect and maintain the marvel. But, and if anything, make the argument that production released from the fetters of capitalism, i.e. fettering it, fettering production to just that what is profitable, we should be able to have much more innovation. We should be able to have, we should be able to unleash the creative potential of humanity. And this isn't just a, you know, one or two comments uh, that, you know, Marx or Engels made in, say, the, the conscious manifesto. But this is, this is right through not just their writing, but the, the entire canon of, of socialist yeah.
0: writing. Marx's Marx's letters on this are actually the most, uh, I think, the the, the best exhibit. Uh, exhibit A of, of his enthusiasm for technology. He would he would go to these, uh, these you know these kind of world's fair style exhibitions that you had, you know, in the ni- in the eighteen seventies and so on, where they where they would demonstrate all of the the latest innovations and in technologies for people to marvel over, and the journalists would gather, and the and the capitalists would uh, you know reach for their. Reach for their pockets uh, to you know to snatch these things up. So things such as the cotton gen Marx wrote very, very uh, approvingly of, uh, such that it could potentially one day provide the technological basis to free labor from backbreaking and horrific uh, work, if we could only democratize and socialize the means of production. That's right. Um, yeah. So yeah. talk to me about. You've written about this as well. Talk to me. So this is a leading question, to say the least. Talk to us about where and when that dialectical sense of sort of technological marvel was lost. Perhaps it had something to do with uh, Adorno. I don't
1: know. Yeah, yeah, no, I think that, that that's, <laughs> lay down, that's. Let's
0: lay down fantastic. a diss track on Adorno. Sorry in advance to the people out there, particularly the patrons. <laughs> uh, who are the big Adorno fans. I think,
1: that, but first, I, I did just want to say that with respect to eco modernism, maybe people need to know what sort of that is. And it's a tendency within a school of thought within environmentalism, um, that began to, I guess around sort of the mid 2000s that began to recognize that some of the unacknowledged sort of beliefs within environmentalism did not match up to sort of evidence. That is to say, things like, you know, questions around nuclear power, where, uh, the sort of the, one of the shibboleths on the left is that nuclear power is, is terrible and very deadly and, but it turns out, you know, if you if you look at it, it isn't. It's actually the safest of all energy sources, and it happens to be clean. Doesn't emit any uh, any carbon dioxide in terms of its entire uh, life cycle. It has the uh, the lowest carbon intensity, other than onshore onshore wind. But different from wind and solar, is available twenty four seven. It isn't dependent on the sun shining or the wind blowing. So to keep our our hospitals lights on and the machines and the diastole machines and, and fMRI machines and so on and so forth in the hospitals running 24-7, uh, we need uh, electricity available at all times. And the so eager modernism sort of began to critique those elements of, of the environmental movement that didn't take these things into account and held onto a lot of uh, smallest, beautiful, um, back-to-the-land perspectives I mean, with respect to uh, agriculture. The idea that... Uh, Small-scale farming is a solution to our environmental problems. is is grossly mistaken. Uh, the land footprint of, uh, I mean, the yield is so much lower than uh, industrial farming, uh, which means and the the uh, the single largest source of emissions from agriculture is uh, land use change. So if it takes more land to produce the same amount of produce, then you are, by returning to small-scale farming, you're significantly increasing the, the largest source of emissions from agriculture. So it's just very, very backwards. Uh, That's not to say that there aren't problems with industrial agriculture. There absolutely are. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that could, the, could you say that uh, again uh, for the
0: back row, the haters in the back who uh, say that you are a shell of non-Satan? If people yeah. don't know, if you've <laughs> never heard uh, one of my chats with Lee Phillips on DPS here, you, you should know that there are a lot of hothouse debate you know, sectors on the left, right? People just sort of screaming at each other online in really uncharitable and unproductive ways. But I have never seen a more hothouse environment online than with this sort of – this question of eco-socialism, eco-modernism, how to handle these things. And you have been smeared and slandered and maligned in all sorts of ways as being a shill for Monsanto. (laughs) So I just wanted to forefront that, provide that context, give you an opportunity one more time to denounce the corporate, uh, our corporate overlords in Monsanto and and elsewhere.
1: Yeah, it's very strange to be accused of these things. But yes, no, it's a pit of vipers. Um, The hatred that eco-socialists have for eco-modernists is, is, uh, is pretty, it's, it's only matched probably by the hatred that identitarians have for, for socialists. Um, yeah, that's probably a, a good comparison there.
0: Yeah. So you opened up Pandora's box of nuclear. Let's put that off to the side for a moment. Um, cause we want to dive into that. The, the new mini series on HBO, Chernobyl has opened that up right, in yeah. a big way. And we want to address that really head on. Um, sure. what are some of the Talk to us about you know our listeners who aren't involved in these in these viper pit uh, style debates online. What are some of the more pragmatic aspects? What are the stakes? The real concrete stakes of these disagreements between people who otherwise agree with almost everything? Uh, you know, these are all we're all talking about good progressives, good socialists here. You know, who who all who are all you know at least at the very you know will will be happy to pull a lever for a Bernie Sanders or or Jeremy Corbyn type of person. Right? there's a tremendous. Tremendous, there's a much more larger degree of disagreement in broad societies, what I'm trying to say. What, what are some of the real stakes here? I, I mean, I would say that uh, there is some philosophical uh,
1: disagreement at, at base, a really, really quite significant one. But, but at first, the, but the much more important is the stakes. And the stakes are uh, that we don't solve climate change as, as rapidly as, as, as we otherwise could and result in some significant challenges to um, to the maintenance of human flourishing. And at the sort of the upper end of things, uh, with respect to, uh, the association of the increased, um, atmospheric concentration of carbon dioxide with previous, uh, many, uh, previous mass extinction events. I mean, that, that's the thing that really worries me more than anything. The sort of the deep greens, and um, eco socialists often simultaneously make, uh, some of the things that, aren't really that much of a challenge to be served, or maybe a challenge, but are not existential threats, into existential threats, and then sometimes miss the things that really are existential threats. So, for example, a good example would be um, increased droughts. I'm very, very worried about that. But uh, a good example of what is is sort of missed here in terms of uh, social context. There's a lot of discussion by... Well actually, the Pentagon and other uh, other figures, but also this is often echoed by um, environmentalists deep greens, that the civil war in Syria was caused by uh, a drought in the region. Now it may well be the case that uh, drought contributed to that, but I somehow think that you know global po- uh, geopolitics and Assad may have had something at least to do with with that that, that conflict, whereas um, just You know, in Israel now we can we can have a a good, helpful, you know, fruitful discussion about the challenges of uh, not merely challenges but the horrific circumstances of uh, of Palestinians in the occupied territories. Uh, Nevertheless, Israel Israel proper itself is a developed state, and that drought impacted Israel at exactly the same time. Yet there wasn't a civil war in Israel. So what's the difference there? Well, it's, it's a much more developed state. It was able to respond to that by innovation within desalination to the point that, and, and, you know, the state threw lots of money at this. It was a sort of mini green deal, if you will, there. And so for me, the question of drought is, it's a huge challenge and it's something we certainly don't want. And why would we be spending money on things that we don't need to if that drought happens? When we could be spending that on other things like healthcare or education or whatever happens to be, so it's 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 simply a waste, wasted opportunity. But it's not existentially threatening. Whereas something like a mass extinction event, if we're really living through a mass extinction event at the moment, then basically there's like not much we can do. We are screwed. We really are, the, the 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 food the, the food web in which we humans are embedded would would break down, and and we, that really is game over for us but you don't often hear these people talk about this. So there's a very strange sort of simultaneous exaggeration and apocalypticism about things that are, you know, not great and and, and certainly challenging but aren't existential and then the ones that really are existential they just they, they seem to sort of uh, not mention or pass by. And so th- that's what I'd that's what I would say in terms of the stakes. If we don't get this right, that's what I really worry about both the the sir, significant challenge and waste that we, uh, are sort of spending on things that we don't need to spend on. Uh, we are in a, we will be moving into a suboptimal set of conditions for human flourishing at uh, the best. And at the worst case, uh, it really is challenging to the continued existence of uh, civilization or even the human species. So those are the stakes, right? So if you really do care about climate change on that level and, you know, the name Extinction Rebellion, rebellion, these, um, these young activists, That's in the name extinction and they're worried about uh, human extinction. Then you really do need to be taking a massive worldwide build out of a nuclear, a new nuclear fleet to be the core of your, of your project. There is no other way for us to have a clean transition without either nuclear or hydro. Being a foundation of our clean energy system. And that's being shown with all of the, uh, you know, roughly about eight different economies where in the world where the energy, uh, the electric, sorry, the electricity grid is largely or pretty much completely clean. So these would be uh, Norway, Sweden, Finland, uh, France, Canada. And there's uh, a couple of other ones, um, that's giving me right now, but basically all of them, all of them are hydro and nuclear dependent with. Greater or lesser degrees of intermittent renewables, um, primarily wind, on the margins. The within energy systems, there is really no debate anymore about the essential role of nuclear. The qu- the debate now is how much um, are we going to need uh, is and and how much uh, can variable renewables, intermittent renewables like wind and solar, how, what's the level of penetration? Can they uh, just have a sort of 30% penetration in the, um, the electricity mix, or can they go as high as 80%? That's really where the debate is. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change special report on uh, 1.5 degrees of warming that came out last year that has spurred so much action, so much activism. Um, within it, there are four, what are called illustrative uh, pathways. Those are basically four different ways that you could Result in a net zero greenhouse gas emissions by mid-century. Forty-five percent reduction by twenty uh, on twenty ten levels by twenty thirty, and a fifty percent, sorry, net zero reduction by twenty fifty, which is what we would need to keep within one point five degrees of warming after pre-industrial times. If you want to keep within a two degree uh, level of warming, which is the guardrail within the Paris Agreement, then you want a twenty-five percent reduction in uh, greenhouse gas emissions by 2030 and um, and and net zero by around 2070. Anyway, so these illustrative pathways, four different um, uh, illustrative pathways based on uh, multiple scenarios. And these are just, as the name says, illustrative pathways. They give you an idea of the types of things that can be done. All and the variation in the four different illustrative pathways basically make a different set of assumptions about growth, technologies, lifestyles, and also crucially, the level of, of dependence on bioenergy plus carbon capture and storage. the bottom end, there's no uh, use of bioenergy plus carbon capture and storage. And at the upper end, there is a significant amount of uh, assumption of uh, bioenergy ca- carbon capture and storage. And basically what that means, sorry, I'm too much jargon here. But uh, basically, it's okay. the, need, the need to draw down carbon dioxide from the atmosphere uh, to a greater or le- uh, lesser degree, depending on uh, uh, using... Bioenergy that is then whose emissions are then captured and, and stored or used in some other way, but the, the problem with bioenergy plus carbon capture and storage, basically known as BECS at large scales, would be con- it would begin to contest the use of that same land for food and feed. So it's significantly challenging to our food system. So we do, really don't want to go down that road. Anyway, every single one of these four illustrative pathways involves. A significant amounts of nuclear if you want to have uh, you know, anything from from um, a fifty nine percent increase in the amount of uh, nuclear in the, the, the sort of global electricity mix by 2030 and hundred fifty percent 2050 up to as much as a five hundred percent increase in uh, nuclear generation by 2050.
0: Pardon the interruption, everybody, but this is the part of the program where I ask you to join the 400-some-odd patrons of DPS Media in supporting this project with your resources. As you know, Dead Punnett Society is a weekly podcast that comes out once a week for free, and the only way I'm able to do that is through the generous support of our patron network. So if you have the resources and you're able to support this project and you want to get the politics out there far and wide, keep this thing going – I implore you to head over to www.patreon.com slash deadpundits and become a supporter of these politics today. I know by now that weekly DPS episodes kind of feels as automatic as gravity, death, and taxes. And I hope that's true. I hope that we are able to continue far into the future with the same degree of regularity that we've had over the past two and a half years. But it's not certain. It's really not certain, people. Uh, putting on these podcasts it requires a tremendous amount of time, energy, money, and effort. And I cannot do this if I do not bring in uh, enough money to survive on. Let's just be real blunt about it. This is a socialist podcast. Uh, we all have to pay our bills, feed ourselves, and so on. It's particularly difficult to be in left media because it's such a hothouse. And I rely on the generosity of my listeners in order to keep this thing going And I can't tell you how often it is that I will put out an episode, maybe like the one today, (laughs) that's a little bit controversial, which compels current patrons to rush to patreon.com and unsubscribe as a DPS patron. And I understand the impulse. People get really tied to these politics. People tie their identity to their political platform. And when they hear their Favored podcast host railing in in the opposite direction of a principle or an idea or a policy that they cherish. I understand that that stings a little bit and they might want to rush over to Patreon and unsubscribe. But I I implore you, I encourage you to have a much wider, uh, long term view of supporting socialist media projects. To put it lightly, we're going to have to disagree and disagreement is good. We don't want a left socialist media ecosphere wherein people like me are too afraid to state their opinions and too afraid to make certain distinctions and have debates out in the open because they're afraid they won't get the support in order to continue that project if they do so. I'm certainly not hating on my podcast colleagues who make a calculated judgment to avoid controversial topics for fear of angering their supporters uh, because we all make our decisions and hey i bet they eat a lot better than i do (laughs) but the point is that i'm very proud of the fact that dps sticks to its guns it offers a a unique perspective on principled cutting-edge democratic socialist politics and if you are listening today i presume that you enjoy that too so i'll wrap up this extended funding pitch by asking you to head over to patreon.com slash dead pundits and support this project if you'd like to see it continue into the future all right enjoy the rest of the episode so let's 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 pull out for a second some of the, the countries that are leading the way in nuclear power production hence very relatively low carbon uh, footprint these countries that are leading the way in nuclear energy are are facing political backlashes inside of their own nations well, uh, places it, it depends. like Germany and France and Italy where you write about um, the the let me let me pull out a quote here. You have a piece uh, a couple of pieces out. This is from your piece that appeared in the uh, MIT journal. I will uh, link to this in the show notes as well. The Union of Concerned Scientists have reported that if all of these plants are shut down that are currently uh, threatened by political um, you know political, Disapproval in these countries. Estimates suggest that carbon emissions would increase by six (laughs) percent. So we're we're not not only we're not going in the right direction in terms of of investing in clean and safe, up to date nuclear technology, not like Chernobyl folks, but we're actually trending backwards and these will be undoubtedly replaced by natural gas.
1: That's Uh, right. Absolutely. Um, Where we're seeing uh, nuclear plants being retired. Uh, rather than being refurbished largely as a result of campaigning by anti-nuclear um, activists these are not being replaced by wind and solar or hydro but being replaced by natural gas or even worse in the case of germany by coal and in germany uh the worst kind of coal anthracite brown coal it's the dirtiest kind of coal there is yeah no it's a, it's a uh, the closure of nuclear power plants is an utter disaster. For the
0: climate. So let's let's put a really fine point on this then, because your disagreement with a lot of people who 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 call themselves eco-socialists, and I want to be very careful about this, because I think a lot of people just say like eco-socialism. Hey, I like those two words. I want to put them together. Hey, I'm I like that. I'm going to call myself an eco-socialist. Why not? Uh, you know, anthropogenic climate change is absolutely terrifying. The the stakes couldn't be any more stark. Uh, I'm an eco-socialist. A lot of the leading people who sort of coined that name, who represent that. Banner that that subgenre of, of of ecological socialist politics are staunchly opposed to things like nuclear, uh, various forms of say genetic modifications of food supplies. In in, in short, they're highly skeptical at, at at best. I would say highly skeptical of this idea that humans and scientists should uh, collaborate, you know, democratically to create the world. That we live in because they say that that is sort of some somehow goes against nature and you have a piece out uh, in the Breakthrough Institute journal I'll link to this as well called planning the earth system a call for global democracy where you make the case that creatures going back to uh, ancient forms of plankton have been radically transforming the earth's you know um, the biosphere. And humans have been no different going back to four and 5,000 years ago. So we we have no choice but to radically and drastically modify and and plan and create in a humane way our Earth system uh, lest we face extinction. That seems to be the real key disagreement between, say, your position and the unfortunately titled uh, eco-socialists out there. And a lot of people out there might be rethinking now, hmm, maybe I shouldn't be calling myself an eco-socialist. I don't know. I'll leave that up to them. Yeah, unpack that all for our audience just so we can kind of oh, get it. out. gosh. Yeah. There's a lot in the, there. Yeah, you know, there. quite frankly, this, this should be like 10 episodes. So we're going <laughs> to do the best we can. We're going to do the best we can to get all of this in uh, in, 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 a, in a tight hour.
1: Yeah, I guess I guess to boil it down is that um, uh, the people who call themselves eco-socialists are neither eco nor socialist. And that the, um, uh, the the set of responses that they tend to favor are. Uh, Smallest, beautiful, back to the land, variable renewables, not uh, reliable, clean energy. They tend to be very critical of what they call techno fixes. Um, it, it fundamentally, it's and 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 uh, believe in degrowth and um, um, a retraction, like a reduction in the uh, the global economy.
0: So they have a critique I, of extractivism too that really grounds yes, a lot of their stuff. Yeah, We've yeah, been remiss in failing that absolutely.
1: one. Uh, gosh, where to start with this? Yeah, so, so much. Uh, if, so if if you're opposed to extraction, that means you're opposed to mining. So how exactly are you going to build all of the clean electric uh, buses and train, high-speed trains, and even bicycles without um, extraction of steel from um, from the earth? Um, how are you going to do that? Uh, it's, it's just not it's not just not realistic. And usually when you say this to them, and you say, oh well, we didn't mean that. I said, well, why did you say anti-extraction then? There are lots of things that we can do to uh, to clean up mining, particularly in the developing world. Primarily, the, the, the challenge with mining historically has been the fact that there has been a repression of trade unions. In those places in the Western world where trade unions have been powerful over uh, many decades in these sectors, they have fought for and su- successfully won higher pay, better working conditions, safe, uh, safer working conditions, to the point that in Canada... Mining is a, you know, and it's a very, very mining heavy economy in Canada. And we have a 30%, roughly, I think 30% trade union penetration rate in Canada compared to I think it's like 11% in the United States. So we still have a very strong militant trade union tradition in Canada. In those circumstances, mining is largely above ground uh, by the workers. Uh, the conditions are excellent, very safe, uh, high pay. They're very desirable uh, jobs. This is in contrast to uh, Canadian comp- mining companies operating in, say, the Congo or in uh, South America, where those regulations and trade union protections do not exist, and the reason they don't exist is because of the history of Western imperialism in these countries, uh, primarily American imperialism, crushing the um, the trade union movement and the socialist movement in the, in those areas. So the solution to this is not an end of mining, an end to mining, but the solution instead is a revival of trade union militancy. And public sector, uh, strong public sector, um, sort of regulation of these sectors.
0: Mm-hmm. Perhaps a socialist government that could demand, you know, White, in, in exactly. the in the imperium, you know, we're talking about imperialism for for bad. Uh, in the interim, we'd have we need an imperialism for good, where you could imagine a Bernie Sanders government mandating that all of exactly. the silver or tin that comes into the United States has to be mined by workers who have access to free and democratic yeah. uh, trade union exactly. procedures. The
1: irony is that even as eco-socialists or, or degrowthers criticize eco-modernists as being techno-fetishists or technophiles, the the irony of this is that, that they are the ones that are fetishizing technology because they are they seem to believe that there's something inherently evil or immoral in the technology, as opposed to looking at the social circumstances and economic economic circumstances that surround those technologies so mining is inherently bad for them as opposed to what is the state of trade union struggle in in the mines they cannot envisage a healthy strongly worker uh, with strong worker protections uh, environment in the mines it's just impossible for them and i think one of the problems here again which is why this is not socialist is mine workers themselves when they look at these arguments they're horrified and say you 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 aren't even talking to us one of the strongest opponents of the uh, the Green New Deal, as it has been currently formulated in the United States, is the is the Mine Workers Union. Other uh, unions include the electricians, the you know, building trades, the laborers, the iron workers, steel workers. There was a letter written by seven different major trade unions in the United States. Basically, yeah, the UMWA, the IBW, the steel workers, the utility workers. Uh, transportation and communication union, sheet metal uh, workers, and boilermakers. You're basically look, and they wrote a, uh, a letter to AOC saying, please can, you know, speak to us uh, because we're, we're, you know, we're, we're in favor of some of your bold ideas, but uh, you aren't speaking to us. And we need to be in on this, these conversations from the ground floor. Uh, basically, nothing about us without us. And what we find is in those areas in the United States and elsewhere where Green New Deal activists have from the ground up gone and spoken to trade unions in the development of their proposals. They are finding much stronger support from trade unions. Now, there's an argument that, oh, well, you know, trade unions, uh, if you look at the trade union members membership, they're actually more supportive. And this is based on a, a survey of roughly 1,200 people by Data for Progress. But even there, it was just it was a bare 52 percent. Uh, That were in favour of the conception of the Green New Deal, and within that, if you if you look at some number of the other questions, there was a net negative support, that is to say, uh, net opposition to things like all electric vehicles, and that's basically because people are very concerned about their the the loss their loss of jobs. the uh, The Green New Deal, as it's uh, as it's formulated, uh, promises a just transition, but if you read the criticisms of these trade unionists, what they say is, we don't trust that. We've heard this before. What there has to be is explicit language in any of your uh, policy proposals that tell us how our jobs are going to be saved, how our livelihoods are going to be maintained. And nobody, and really nobody, nobody's doing that yet. It's, well, with the exception of uh, Maine, the, uh, the Green New Deal conversation in Mail, the state of Maine did actually um, do this and involved language around registered apprenticeships, which is one of the strongest ways to steadily increase uh, workers' pay and benefits. In a capitalist economy, obviously, given that we're not going to have socialism tomorrow, what are the best things that we can do to steadily ratchet up the conditions and the pay of workers? Well, uh, registered apprenticeships is is one really good one. Another really good thing that could be in there would be something like saying every single worker that is hurt by the potential of losing a a job as a result of the clean transition, their paying conditions will be maintained. It would be guaranteed that they will be maintained no matter what. It's not like we will make sure that you have better access to unemployment insurance or we will give you better access to training. It's explicitly saying we guarantee you, we promise you, you will never lose out. And that's very different from, I mean, in Canada, there's a discussion about the Green New Deal that's recently launched by our new Democratic Party, which is our uh, Social Democratic Party. And some of it, I think, is pretty, pretty good. But what's missing there is is exactly this is within it the proposal talks about greater access to unemployment insurance well <laughs> that, that doesn't sound very
0: good yeah. well we saw how this played out in the Hillary Clinton campaign in 2016 where not only did she say we're going to put a whole lot of coal miners out of out of work but she you know also promised these out of work coal miners you know job training at the local community college where they'd have to go into labor market and compete with you know uh, 20 year olds to, to to get jobs as coders or you know what's what and, what and that's what it
1: sounds and that's what it sounds like yeah, and they're not idiots they're they yeah. shit they're not idiots no. and they are shit scared uh, because Absolutely. all that they have ever seen their entire lives is their friends lose jobs their family members lose jobs and here are these hot top middle class kids in and i'm one of these people in the city in the in the, in the metropolis saying don't worry We'll make sure that there's training for you to become a coder or something like that. That is, they, they, they hear this and they hear Hillary Clinton. Yeah, um, yeah. Um, the echoes Hillary Clinton. We have, to, we have to do better because if we do not learn the lessons of the last six months of how, where the Green New Deal role it has worked, like in places like Maine, and where it has stumbled, like in California, we will be losing this opportunity to make the change that really needs to happen. Both in terms of improving uh, working people's lives and in solving the climate crisis and associated environmental challenges.
0: And it would seem to me—I'm sure you'd co-sign this as well. Right going,
1: stakes. It's right stakes.
0: Yeah, going Sorry. even going even further. You know, we we need not only the approval of labor and scientists everywhere, but we need we need them to help us craft these policies in the first yeah. place. They are the ones who comprise the material. And hell, even ideational capacities that are going to be required to pull this thing off. We need scientists behind this to talk to us about, you know, what's possible? What are the innovations? What's, what's, what's realistic? What we, what should we prioritize? We need labor to provide the capacities, uh, for work, you know, workplace, uh, you know, work process and, and other material rollouts of these things, uh, to, to give us their expertise. And you know one of the problems I see with the, the kind of eco socialist critique is they're very quick to draw attention to these sort of big abstractions. you start talking about well we need to mine things in order to make this transition and they, they jump to extractivism and then immediately they jump to imperialism and then immediately they're jumping to colonialism and we're throwing around these very large things and of course, I mean all people in this in this in this conversation, myself yourself, and I presume all of my guests are appalled by. Uh, disgusting forms of imperialism and racism and colonialism and other, other kind of historical crimes that have been committed in the name of uh, extracting and, and, and receiving, funneling, channeling uh, raw materials from the, the, quote, periphery to the core. If you'd like to imagine that way, I don't think that's very accurate, but it's a quick and dirty way to, to look over it. But the trouble is, right, we need this sort of in, these embedded forms of knowledge in order to get over these more kind of um, moralistically driven declarative statements that have been sort of proliferating on the, quote, eco-socialist left for the past two decades. And we're in a moment where we can really get that done. Talk to me a little bit about some of these more concrete proposals for the Green New Deal that have emerged, uh, not only from, you know, from the United States and Bernie Sanders camp, but also, you know, John McDonnell has recently been writing quite a bit about the importance of of sort of, you know, uh, custom fitting the Green New Deal for the British context as well.
1: Yeah, I mean, I uh, am a big supporter of Bernie Sanders and a big supporter of John McDonnell as a significant uh, move away from from the neoliberal status quo. But I do have to be honest here. I think that both of them fall down with respect to their opposition to nuclear power. John McDonald, I think, has said some interesting things recently, which seems to suggest that he's opening the door a little bit to, to nuclear, which I think is a, a good sign. And I think that language from AOC uh, saying that, you know, they're leaving the door open to nuclear is is hopeful, although the, unfortunately the language in the FAQ that uh, her office put out, which she subsequently sort of washed her hands off was explicitly anti-nuclear which is which is really unfortunate but i'm hopeful that the people some people like that are, are listening where bernie isn't bernie is is stridently anti-nuclear and you know i wrote a, an article back in 2016 in the new republic as a supporter of bernie saying please bernie um listen to what energy systems experts are saying about this listen to what the ipcc the internet governmental panel on climate change is saying about nuclear listen to engineers when 600 green uh, non-governmental organizations, 16, uh, 600 of them put out a uh, an open letter, you know, it's like Greenpeace, Friends of the Earth, Sunrise Movement, and so on and so forth, put out a letter calling for a Green New Deal and what they would like to see in it. And within it, there can't be any nuclear, there can't be any new hydro, hydroelectricity, there can't be any carbon capture and storage. The grid has to be decentralized. Which, I, Oh my God, like how, how are you going to have a smart continent Wide uh, load balancing grid that is local. Like it, you're, it's, it's a continental scale that, that can't be decentralized. Uh, so it's just incoherent from within itself. But, you know, energy systems experts are looking at this stuff and they're, they're laughing. They're saying, this is, this is bonkers. They're not paying attention to, uh, uh, to the evidence. They're not reading any of the literature on energy systems. In effect, they are their opposition to things like nuclear and the need for a reliable grid. What will happen is they regularly will trot out one or two researchers that they have found that oppose nuclear and say that it isn't necessary and that we can do it completely with wind, uh, wind and solar. Uh, people like Mark Jacobson from Stanford. The reality is that within the energy systems community, those figures are minoritarian. It is effectively the same as with respect to climate denial, where the Republicans will go and find, you know, like the one coastal engineer who doesn't believe in anthropogenic global warming, and then take that person on a tour of uh, Republican, you know, town hall meetings, and see, look, look, there are scientists who don't believe in climate change. I mean, basically, it's it's cherry picking, it's a single study syndrome, picking the one study that supports what they believe, and ignores the consent, the scientific consensus. It's not, I, I would be saying too much to say that there's a scientific consensus on the amount of nuclear, but there is pretty much a scientific consensus on the need for nuclear and or hydro in a clean system. And they're just, you know, they're just ignoring it. Now, the challenge here is, and this is, if there's anything that uh, your listeners uh, take away from this, this one thing I would say is that truly we do not, a lot of activists, climate activists, really don't have any full understanding of the scale of the new clean energy generation infrastructure that needs to be built. Canada, this is a country that already has a roughly 70% clean electricity grid. We still have some coal in our system and some natural gas, but we're largely hydro and nuclear dependent. But we also need to decarbonize our heating. We need to decarbonize our transport, and we need to decarbonize our industry. And we haven't really done much of that. And so we need not just to decarbonize our electricity system, but we need to now electrify much of that—that that industry, the heating, and the transport—and that means a significant increase in electricity generation. And the the figures that have uh, been uh, that are that are dis- that have been discussed or projected by independent researchers hired by the, the the Canadian federal government to produce a series of different possible pathways, just uh, to achieve. Just a 65% reduction on emissions, not 100% reduction on emissions by 2050. And we know that we need 100%, not 65%. The projections that they have is between a doubling and a quadrupling of the current clean energy generation. So all of the hydro dams in Canada, all of the nuclear plants, all of the wind and solar that we have, imagine all of that, which is considerable, and doubling it or quadrupling it. Whichever mix that we choose, whether we go for lots of wind and solar with a smaller amount of nuclear hydro or lots of uh, nuclear and not much uh, wind and solar, whatever mix we're talking about, that will have a huge impact in terms of land footprint and uh, local opposition. And we need to start right now in having a conversation With other citizens and and making people realize just how much new uh, infrastructure is going to have to be built. Now, this is great in terms of working class jobs, but it will be significantly challenging uh, in terms of local sort of NIMBYism. And I don't think people are really um, having that conversation yet.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's local, not in my backyard ism. Sorry, yeah. For those out there who haven't come across the NIMBY phrase. Uh, that's man. This is big. I mean, I think that's a that's a really cr- critical and crucial takeaway. And if you know, you think like, oh, maybe we're on the right track. Well, I think again, because I want to reiterate a line that you wrote about, and you mentioned at the beginning of our conversation today, which is that uh, there has been zero net decrease in coal coal fired power plants since the first uh, climate protocols. Uh, 20 years ago, almost exactly 20 years ago, 19
1: share, share, share of, share of non-fossil energy. Yes. Share it's, of it's non-fossil sense. Energy. Yeah. So it's not just coal. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, so it's even worse, um, which is, you know, in, in large part due to these, uh, industrializing economies in places like China and India and elsewhere, but it's also due to a uh, lack of leadership from places like the United States and Canada and to a lesser extent and, uh, and, and Europe. um,
1: Wow. If, I could just, if I could just say one, one yeah, more thing that's do, really sort of alienating a lot of working people is, you know, language uh, that AOC and others have used around things like meat and around aviation and around having children. Mm-hmm. You know, discussions yeah. of yeah. saying, you know, maybe people shouldn't have children. I'm thinking twice about having children. You know, that you're alienating the vast majority of people there. Also, it's just not, it just isn't the case that having more children is, is a problem. When people say, as AOC did in both the FAQ and then on television, an interview saying that basically we, we need to be get, uh, get rid of uh, farting cows and airplanes, well, she's alienating all of those pilots and ground staff and air traffic controllers and flight attendants uh, that work in that sector. And why, why is it that we're not saying, well, let's have an industrial policy so that we can take from uh, from concept through to commercialization, synthetic hydrocarbons, uh, which are carbon neutral or even carbon negative. And there's, this is not pie in the sky stuff. This is already being developed in, in British Columbia at commercial scale. But it does need a industrial, basically industrial policy to, to take it through to, to viability. Uh, there's still a lot of work that needs to be done there in a sort of Mariana Mazzucato entrepreneurial state sort of fashion moonshot sort of stuff. Um, which you know the right cannot do because they're neoliberal. They are opposed to picking winners. The left is 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 perfectly fine to be to be making these arguments. But instead, we're saying no. We're not going to have any planes anymore, and we're just going to have high speed trains instead. And then what do you do? Like if if you're in Hawaii or Puerto Rico or Guam and you hear that, you say, "Oh, well, that's lovely. Yeah, a high speed train to uh, to Hawaii. I, what 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 a, what on earth are you smoking?" Have I mean, you just completely forgotten about uh, your history of, of, of colonialism within the United States and how you regularly just forget about Hawaii and Puerto Rico and Guam and so on and so forth? The, the National Farmers Union, the, uh, the most progressive um, farmers organization in the United States, you know, there was an article in Jacobin magazine criticizing the NFU, the National Farmers Union's concerns around the Green New Deal. Um, at their, their convention. If you look at the lang and basically what they said, uh, the, the Jackman article by Raj Patel, uh, said that, um, the, the farmers are basically the, the in this farmers union are basically part of a Gramscian hegemonic block that is, um, uh, legitimizing the dominant ideology. And, it, but if you go and you actually look at what they said and their, uh, their motions on the floor at their convention, they said the Green New Deal is a fantastic, bold idea. But we have real concern that these people, when their formulation of, of the, the conversation, when they say no more meat, that they don't know what work we're already doing on a day-to-day basis to make the meat industry more, uh, more sustainable. Uh, we know we're front, we're in the front lines of uh, climate change and the impacts of climate change on, on our crop yields. Don't think that we don't know about this and don't think that we aren't committed to real, genuine, transformative change. But again, no conversations about us without us, and they were furious absolutely furious and I think rightfully so
0: well these are the people who as as you mentioned to me off air to give credit where credit is due these are people who are otherwise these critics like i don't want I don't mean to single out Raj Patel I haven't read the piece uh, I trust your assessment of it but um but these are people who are otherwise very concerned about hearing about the needs and desires of of oppressed communities when it comes to you know, providing them with various programs. These are people who are oftentimes very skeptical of universal programs because it doesn't do that sort of embedded community level work, um, allegedly, which I think is questionable. We'd have to talk. That's an empirical question, right? It requires a great deal of specificity, but that's exactly what we're talking about. These are empirical questions. They do require specificity and it requires specialized forms of knowledge and experience that the left absolutely, it's not that we don't just, we don't just need it. We fucking can't do it without it. We can't do anything without it. And and the fact that it's it's not the knee-jerk position of people who are advocating for these types of policies to go to the people who are doing the, the stuff first and, uh, you know, to start those relationships and begin those discussions. There's little wonder that they don't trust us.
1: Absolutely. Um, I mean, l- let me put it this way. I wouldn't, uh, you know, it, this much of my critique of the green left um, or eco-socialists or whatever, however we want to describe them, comes from frustration rather than a sort of sectarian anger. I want to convince them I wish they had a better perspective on this because, you know, they are absolutely responsible for putting climate change on the agenda. They In so many other areas, they're on the right side. So these are my comrades. These are my brothers and sisters. Absolutely. But I have to say, so is the, uh, you know, the United Mine Workers. So are the iron workers. So are the boilermakers. And when I hear Naomi Klein write in the intercept that the mine workers need to be kicked out of the AFL-CIO because of their concerns around the Green New Deal, I'm sorry, but who is really being sectarian here? Yeah,
0: and I think, you know, luckily – most of the people who advocate these positions aren't, aren't really that ideological. They sort of, uh, you know, these ideas are put out there by thought leaders like Naomi Klein and they enter the ether and, and they become the, the sort of status quo of position staking that people sort of, you know, uh, glean from their consumption of outlets like the intercept and Jacobin. So the good news is I don't think that the average person out there, maybe a listener right now, who's coming to these criticisms for the first time and maybe rethinking them, or that maybe they're very upset with us right now. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> I don't think those people have really sort of any kind of deep grounded relationship to these ideas. And they're, they're able, I think they can reconceptualize this quite, quite readily and, and quickly. It's, it's the thought leaders that, that are very entrenched and it, it makes you wonder kind of um, who's going to hold who are they accountable to? Right, well, even, the well, even
1: well, even there, like you know, Naomi Klein is a sister. She is absolutely a comrade. Um, you know, uh, her and her husband's struggles in, uh, to uh, to raise the profile of the the, the struggles of Argentine workers um, after the economic collapse. There is, you know, absolutely has to be saluted. I've seen her on many many picket lines, and I will march arm in arm with her on any day when it comes to that sort of stuff so this is a friendly critique this is a uh, i mean i am frustrated um in many respects but it, but it is hopefully a, a comradely critique i wish these people would change their minds i i, I don't bear them any ill will other than that you know re, the real sort of pit of vipers i i have become somewhat uh, well you know sort of
0: twitter being what more let's say
1: yeah. But, but these other figures, I don't – I mean, I AOC, you know, my frustration around her language around aviation and, and meat and children and, and, and the anti-nuclear stuff, it's a frustration. I'm still a massive supporter of hers. Oh, my God. With Bernie, yes. I wish he was pro-nuclear, but I still support him. John McDonnell, let's be more robust in terms of your support for nuclear. And really, maybe you probably shouldn't be talking so much about distributed energy systems. You know, but these are, but I'll still, you know, um I'm, I, you know, have British citizenship, I'm going to be voting for Corbyn. Uh, the NDP, I like, I'm pulling my hair out in Canada that the, the, the new democratic Party's uh, Green New Deal proposal is so vacuous, but I'm still going to be knocking on doors for them come the October general election. So, yeah, it's, it, it is, it's comradely critique. It's not. Uh, it's not uh, any in, out of any sort of malice.
0: Totally, it's worth saying that. I take that as a given. I take that for granted. But it's always worth spelling it out for strangers who are consuming this on their, uh, you know, uh, on their cell phones or, or wherever they they may be. You you find folks out there might be listening to this. Uh, that that is definitely uh, shared. That that ethos is shared on my end as well. So let's let's build this thing. Let's improve it. Uh, you're on the cutting edge here, Lee Phillips. I'm going to post all of these articles uh, in in the show notes. Uh, I I do hope that no one out there, if, if anyone's an Ian Angus fan or uh, (laughs) a hardcore (laughs) eco-socialist proponent, I mean, I do, like, let's, let's work through this. Let's work through this together, right? Like, I mean, we have, we have to, we have to join arm in arm and really have these debates and discussions in a comradely way. And it's going to be up to people like us to fill in the gaps and the shortcomings of these policies. Um, the time for us to sort of look around and hope that somebody else is doing the work. Uh, that time has passed. It's just us, folks. If you're listening to this podcast, you're already on the cutting edge of a lot of these, uh, you know, political projects. But we're not substituting ourselves for the workers either. That's the other thing. Keep that in mind. Anyway, go out and talk to go out and talk to a worker. That worker might know a little something about the production process. I don't know what it's on. Anyway, Lee Phillips, thanks so much for joining us again on Dead Punt. No it's been a real pleasure, and uh, let's do this again sometime. All right. Take care. And that concludes today's episode of DPS. Thanks again to Lee Phillips for joining us. As I wrapped up the interview, I realized that we never really got a chance to talk about nuclear energy with respect to the new HBO miniseries Chernobyl. It has produced uh, a lot of misconceptions about nuclear energy. And I think that it risks heightening the paranoia And the kind of anti-science, anti-science concerns, let's say, about the state of contemporary nuclear energy and uh, how it must contribute to greening the economy and decreasing carbon emissions. Now, I know many listeners out there and even some patrons are probably going to be a little bit uh, hesitant about this argument. And they're going to say, now, wait a minute, Adam. What about Fukushima? What about Three Mile Island? Certainly, what about Chernobyl? These are massive threats to human civilization. Well, I'm going to be having on an expert to talk about Chernobyl, what went wrong, why it went wrong, and why it's not exactly a great allegory for an anti-nuclear movement for the future. Uh, Lee Phillips has been on the cutting edge of some really, uh, let's just say, divisive topics around climate change and science. His article... In defense of air conditioning, which appeared in uh, Jacobin magazine a couple uh, let's say about a year ago, that essay sparked a tremendous amount of controversy. And it is stridently uh, pro-modernist. And it argues that a democratic and people-centered vision of science must accompany a socialist transition. And and I got to tell you, I'm really, I'm convinced by these arguments. And, you know, if you're not, uh, we'd love to hear from you. Hit me up in my DMs on Twitter. Yeah, that's right. I'm actually inviting you to at me this time around. And certainly if you're a patron, hit up the message board. Patrons of the Dead Pundit Society get access to our exclusive Discord message board. I'm in the process of getting that started. We have recently relocated our message board to Discord, so it's still kind of uh, getting cranking. I hope that we will see a lot more activity over there if people have any questions, comments, concerns, disputes that they would like to raise. Head over to patreon.com slash deadpundits and become a subscriber today. Not only will you get access to our B-sides that come out almost every week, but you'll have access to our subscriber board as well on Discord, as I've been talking about. So don't miss that. We do need your support to keep this project up and running. I know that you're used to getting DPS in your podcast feed on a weekly basis, and it seems as normal and constant as Gravity Death and Taxes. But it's not. Uh, the podcast world is blowing up. There are more and more podcasts that come out every single day. And while the enticement of an additional B-side for subscribers was originally quite tasty and tempting to many. Uh, I Don't I know myself? I have so many damn podcasts to listen to that come out every week for free that paying money for an additional podcast episode, is just not as enticing as it used to be. This isn't a Netflix uh, provider model. Uh, it's not a pay-for-play. It truly is a, a model of political support. So just like those wishy-washies support NPR and you know and, and PBS because they they like the message, we ask you To support DPS and these other political projects because you like the message as well, and you would like to see them continue and flourish and expand well into the future. All right, enough out of me, everybody. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Go back and check out those two episodes that I've done over the over the years with Lee Phillips. If you like this one, a lot more context in today's discussion can be found there. All right, same time, same place next week. Dead pundit out.